0: Listening to High Temperature Times, a podcast to trick you into learning more about refractories and treat you to new applications in the industry. My name is Griffin Patterson, and when I'm not howling in a full moon, I masquerade as an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. For this spooktacular October episode, we're going to have a little treat and hear from a couple of the creepiest and eeriest stories from the refractory industry. These refractory horror stories will serve to chill your bones, while also stimulating your mind to learn about some of the more unusual situations in the industry. Chris Hirsch will be talking about the dying business of cremation. Lee Brooks will regale us with evil stories from the post-mortem analyses. John Peters will be lights out at a steel mill. And I will be talking about the horrors of slag attack and gasification. Sit back, grab a bag of popcorn, and enjoy. We Burn the Dead by Chris Hirsch. So cremation
1: is is basically incineration, but instead of hazardous waste, we're incinerating bodies, basically. So it's a cremator. The, the unit itself is a refractory-lined box, and it's generally separated into two chambers. So the, the top chamber is where the human and animal bodies are placed, and they're cremated in that chamber. And that has you know an access door in the front. So the bodies are charged, um, the door is closed, and the you know the unit's turned on. The, the burner comes on. So that's where all the, the refractory horror stories happen. Is that main chamber where the bodies are burning, decomposing, and forming the greases and the nasty chemicals that affect the refractory. The the lower chamber then is where the the gases go after uh, they come off of the body in the main chamber, and that's generally called the afterburner. So they're processed further uh, underneath the main chamber for exiting the stack. The cremation unit. So really, the, the top chamber is is the main one we you know we're concerned with with regard to refractory. That's one that requires more you know, refractory upkeep and replacement because the bottom chamber is just hot gas typically. By refractory wear, I typically consider uh, three categories in cremators. So the first is chemical, uh, the second is like cycling and shock type of uh, wear, and the third is is physical. So from the chemical perspective, we're typically thinking about uh, alkalis, which are found in the, the grease. So when a body is cremated, it basically is decomposing into two main constituents in the main chamber. There's ash and, and grease. Yeah. You know, so the, the grease is where most of the alkali compounds are concentrated. And that's more of a, you know, when the cremator is operating, that's usually in a, a liquidus type phase, which hurts refractory because it's pushing those alkali compounds uh, further into the, you know, into the refractory. Our refractory is somewhat porous, it can suck those compounds up. So that increases the chemical wear. So refractories that are chosen for crematory you know, hearths where all this is happening, we're really focusing on the, the chemical or the, the alkali attack and trying to reduce that as much as possible. So this chemical wear that is um, attributed to the alkali attack tends to be concentrated towards the center of the unit. Of course, that's where the body is placed, and also the main burner tends to be there, and the, the temperatures are highest underneath that burner. The burners are in the roof shooting down, so it's really concentrating a lot of heat, grease in that area. So in addition to the chemical wear, these units are cycled many times per day because the you know, it's a large door in the front and the operator needs to be able to safely work in front of the door after a cycle, get the ash out, prep it for the next cycle, the next body. So it really has to heat all the way up to its operating temperature, around 1800 degrees Fahrenheit or so, and then cool it back down after that cycle is completed. So each time a cremator uh, is heated up and cooled down, the refractory inside of it expands and shrinks. Over time, that can cause degradation of the refractory, causes small microcracks. And the faster that process happens, the heating and cooling further increases those microcrack phenomena. So that just, you know, that's a part of the process we can't really get a- away from, but it does add to the, you know, the wear of the refractory over time. So the last part then is the physical wear. And this you know is kind of in conjunction with the cycling, because each time we're putting a body in the cremator and we cool it down, we have to, you know, scrape out the ash and clean up the unit for the next body, the next cremation cycle. And this process, scraping out the ash can you know abrade the refractory. So what we want is you know the ash to be as clean as possible. We don't you know want refractory grains in in the urn, so it in with the ashes. So the refractory has to be able to resist that scraping action. So when we're considering refractory selection, we have to take into account those, you know, those three main wear factors to kind of balance you know, cost and performance over time. The practice itself of cremation has increased over the years and it's becoming more and more prevalent. So that's been driving more heavy use of existing machines, and it's also been pushing the industry towards bigger and higher performing new machines. These new machines that are being built with higher expectations for refractory, and that's been pushing us to upgrade refractory in high wear areas so we can get the best refractory life and usability out of these machines. So products that worked well maybe 10 or 12 years ago are actually now considered low-end options. For instance, the industry is moving toward low cement castables for harsh, and these are specially designed for alkali resistance and strength. In addition to the, you know, the lower cement content, we've been increasing alumina as well. Which, so that's gonna increase the temperature resistance and it increases the chemical resistance. So maybe, if, you know, years ago, fire clay products, which are about 45% alumina, they would work. Uh, now we're using higher end 60% alumina. So this move in, increases the alkali resistance and the strength. This means the hearths have to replace less often. And this means more uptime for the unit. You know, lower cost of operation you know, over time so the hearts are the the highest wear area because that's where the body's being cremated and has to put up with the, the chemical and alkali the scraping and abrasion but even areas that are considered lower wear such as roofs and the sidewalls are being upgraded to higher performing refractories In sidewalls, we've upgraded from standard fire clay brick to special tongue and groove 60 percent alumina brick and this gives us you know the higher alkali resistance from the, the higher alumina content, you know, greater robustness in the walls to resist the you know, all the cycles that these units go through. And so they, the walls are straighter and stronger for longer. We take the same philosophy on the roofs, which for bigger units are having to support more weight and hold up for a longer period of time. So we're moving to lower cement castables, which actually improves our strength at temperature. You know, this provides longer life and, you know, less cracking over time. So despite what Griffin says about cremation being a dying industry, it really is an important market for Harbison Walker. Our customers continue to push the boundaries, and that has made my job interesting by requiring a lot of problem solving uh, to help improve refractory life.
0: So is it safe to say that when the inevitable zombie apocalypse comes, we can safely burn the bodies in a Harbison Walker refractory-lined cremation unit? (laughs) Sure, Griffin. The Villainy of Dr. Evil, by Lee Brooks.
2: For those listeners who are unaware, HWI's Analytical Technology Department at ATRC provides sales support by analyzing used samples from many refractory applications. These are commonly referred to as post-mortem analyses. Typically, the goal is to identify the primary cause of unusual lining wear and typically it is not done under circumstances of finger pointing, but rather part of a cooperative effort with the customer to determine the root cause. Quite often the cause is process related, so the end result is a suggestion of change in customer's process, such as slag practice, or a recommendation for product upgrade. Most investigations are prompted by a rather moderate miss and expected performance. However, occasionally a horror story is created by unusual circumstances. Investigations of these instances usually reveal that they were caused by a creature, part man, part monster, named Dr. Evil and his wicked assistant, Igor. For those who can bear it, I present to you four such stories. The first horror story took place at a large integrated steel plant where they wanted to decrease ladle turnaround time by speeding up slide plate changes. Dr. Evil had an idea. Dr. Evil commanded, Igor, go to the plant and suggest that they rapidly coal their fired refractory linings by squirting down with a hose. Unfortunately, they took Dr. Evil's suggestion and caused severe thermal shock damage to the lining. Miraculously, no personnel were injured, but as a result, the walls cracked apart and collapsed. Dr. Evil knew that most ceramic materials, such as refractories, are prone to cracking during rapid temperature change. Insidious he was. The second horror story unfolded at an industrial incinerator site. Dr. Evil commanded Igor, the Harbison Walker lining in this incinerator is lasting too long and making their competitors look bad. I want you to sneak into the plant during the dark of night and feed in a barrel full of phosphorus metal. <laughs> The resulting exothermic reaction resulted in extreme heating, which melted a hole in a large area of the highly refractory lining. Dr. Evil was quite devious, cause he knew that phosphorus metal is used in many incendiary bombs, many used during World War II to destroy entire cities. Horror Story 3 occurred at a steel customer site being brought down for scheduled major maintenance. After learning of this, Dr. Evil went right to work, causing more destruction. Dr. Evil commanded, Igor, go to the plant and convince them that they can idle their ladles by just letting them cool down to ambient temperature and sit idly until resumption of production. (coughs) Dr. Evil knew that a material called aluminum carbide formed in the linings while in service and that this material is highly susceptible to hydration. So all the linings hydrated during this period of exposure to moist air, causing them to disintegrate. Dr. Evil lived up to his name. Story 4 occurred at a lime production plant. A rotary kiln was lined with a 6-inch thick euphala brick and was ready for resumption of production. Dr. Evil struck again. Dr. Evil commanded, Igor, I want you to sneak into this plant in the dark of night and misalign the burner. (coughs) Igor succeeded and the misaligned burner resulted in direct flame impingement on the lining. The temperatures far exceeded the threshold temperature of reaction between lime and the brick. This went undetected and the lining wore to one-inch thickness in 10 days. Typical service life was 12 to 18 months. Dr. Evil knew that if overheated, the aluminosilicate lining was chemically incompatible with the lime being processed through the kiln. The burner misalignment was deviously effective. Dr. Evil played a role in many more horror stories over the years and I'm, I'm afraid is still out there today but I must stop here because no human can endure hearing more. These wear mechanisms, thermal shock, overheating, chemical corrosion, and hydration, along with others, are quite common and present a challenge in creating new and improved refractory products to withstand them. However, when Dr. Evil strikes, no material can
0: survive his evil deeds. Lights Out by John Peters
3: You're wondering about the night of hell, huh? Well, I'll tell you what. It's it's the first night that I actually thought I actually was in hell. And it's strange how this even happened. Our, my son called me and wanted to know if I was in the mill yet. And it was 9.30 at night, and he knew I had left at 7 to go back. And I said, no, I was just leaving. Why? He said, well, could you stop by my house and bring my lunch? He said, I forgot my lunch pail outside my garage grabbed his lunch box and I headed up there and I went over to BOF. Well, there's, we got a tunnel that you have to go into BOF. The biggest lightning bolt I've ever seen in my life hit. And it was an instant. One of them deafening ones. Well, the percussion coming down through that alley took my hard hat off even. And I just slowly watched the mill from where that hit. Just everything started turning black. And Because what it was, it hit a main transformer that supplied the mill and it, it it darkened everywhere we have no emergency lighting cuz this has never happened before so imagine the whole mill just turning black in like literally seconds and then look down at the coke oven and it is nothing but an orange glow look over at the blast furnace and they were in the middle of a cast no way to move anything and within minutes there's iron running all over the ground And I know I got new operators over there, and I got a new coordinator up in steelmaking who was blowing heats. He had two heats in the pots and didn't know what to do with them. There for a minute, I thought, oh, man, what in the hell are we going to do? But then it was just like, oh, I just went into remote control. It was like, okay, let me go upstairs and find out where they're at there. Let me find out how many people we got stranded where. And I get up there. I get up there on the floor, and I'm walking down the floor, and all. once I hear somebody say, hey, hey, here comes somebody with a flashlight, and I hear my kids saying, that's probably my old man. He said he's coming with my lunchbox, even though the power's out, and it was. We didn't have power for 14 days. I called the powerhouse because I got some buddies over there. I said, hey, do we have any kind of steam pressure at all? He said, in 30 minutes, he said, I'm going to have enough to be able to do 10 minutes of whatever anybody wants to do. So I go in and I tell that coordinator, I said, you're going to dump both them pots when I tell you to. He said, that's $10 million worth of steel. I said, it's either $10 million worth of steel or we have $30 million to repair them. So you make up your mind. And I did the same thing at the blast furnace. Told them that we were going to gab it in 10 minutes. I said, how do you know? I said, I called the powerhouse. I said, we're going to have 10 minutes worth of electricity, and that's all the steam they're going to have. And I said, so we need to cap whatever we can cap. And it just literally went from hell. We wound up with five ladles frozen up, and but we did get both BOS dumped. And we did get the blast furnace at least the mud gun swung in. <laughs> In um, the five ladles, we completely lost refractory in there, but I saved the refractory in the BOFs, and I saved the refractory in
0: four steel ladles that we were actually able to dump. What happened in the lost ladles that rendered the refractory dead?
3: Um, they solidify, so then we wound up having to take lances and cut it out. It, put it this way, three of them ladles still haven't seen service. It becomes a 385-ton paperweight. Now, what they're doing is they're going to wait for it to go. If, if it gets down to zero for four or five days, there's a chance that we can turn them ladles upside down and hold them upside down and get it to release. Yeah, that's how we got two of them emptied. It turned to zero, and it was supposed to have been zero for a week, so we thought we were going to get them all, but we were able to get two of them. But when it turns to zero, that boilerplate, doesn't change but the steel on the inside shrinks yeah and like i told them it's just like an engine block whenever you go to put a cylinder well i don't know if you know my history but i restore a lot of antique tractors and you take and i stick a light bulb in the block of the motor but i stick the sleeves in the freezer and as i want to put a new sleeve in i just keep moving the light bulb down the block and i told them let's try it let's see if it works and by God, it did work Four subcars froze underneath the tracks for eight days. We had to take and break the iron away from them and use 500-ton cranes to get them loose and change all the rail. And then we spent, what we have? We had nine Treadwell cars that were froze-solid 285-ton paperweights that we had to use a a million-and-a-half BTU burner and actually melt the iron out of the inside a little bit at a time. And, of course... That's going to come back and bite us in the rear end because we normally get two years on a car. And a lot of these cars, we took half of the brick away from them. And unfortunately, four of them were literally brand new cars. But I'll never forget it if I live to be 100 years old because it was 930 at night. I looked right at my watch because that was the biggest lightning bolt I've ever seen. And here's what was in my mind. Well, in the morning when I get home, I'm going to try to find out where the hell that strike was. Little did I know how close it actually was. But it's amazing just how experience kicked in. It's like, okay, let's start working on the second floor and we'll go from there up.
0: Attack of the corrosive slag by Griffin Patterson. In the refractory industry, slag is a four-letter word. Well, uh, I mean, in the real world, slag is actually a four-letter word but in the refractory industry, it's a four letter word. This black sticky gunk is responsible for refractory failure in some of the harshest industries out there. If you've never had the pleasure of walking into a slag containing vessel, it's a real horror to behold. Slag frozen off from running down the walls like blood from the wallpaper in a haunted house. In some areas, it's built up so thick that if it were to fall, it could do serious damage to the refractory below, like in the ash hopper. For the uninitiated, slag is what happens when ash melts. The slag in this story is slightly different than the slag mucking about in the steel or non-ferrous metals industry, but the effects are quite similar. When you use a carbonaceous feedstock, like wood, coal, or even things like rice waste or carpet, that feedstock is not 100% carbon. There's going to be some impurities tied up in there as well. When the carbon is all combusted, pyrolyzed or gasified, what's left behind is the ash. Think about it like this roaring fire you hear in the background. When the fire is out, what's left is a big pile of ash. Well, if you heat that ash up another several hundred degrees, it can melt. Molten ash is called slag. It's a sticky, viscous mess of evil, and it can wreak serious havoc on a refractory lining. You'll see slag in boilers, gasifiers, incinerators, and and many other applications, but not all slags are created equal. They come with an air of mystery. The trick to fighting slag is to know thy enemy. Slags can contain a number of impurities, and it's important to understand what those are so you can choose the right refractory to stop them. Different feedstocks can contain different impurities. But even the same type of feedstock from different locations can have wildly different compositions. Slag can contain any number of different chemicals that can attack refractories in a number of different ways. Iron and lime in the slag can attack silica in the refractory. Alkalis in the slag can attack bonding phases of monolithic refractories or free alumina not tied up in mineralogical phases. The worst of the beast comes when it has vanadium in it which attacks a whole slew of oxides and refractory compositions like cement, iron, and silica, forming very low eutectic melting points, quickly eroding away refractory lining. Even more than the individual culprits, the high temperatures and chemical interaction can actually lead to a higher solubility between the refractory and the attacking slag. To this end, HWI has done chemical simulations to determine the potential for a particular slag composition to attack a particular refractory composition using thermochemical analysis software. This story looks at coal gasifiers, which operate at very high temperatures and pressures and contain some of the worst slag attack in the industry. Slag attack in ferrous and non-ferrous metal applications are equally as demanding, but here we'll focus on slag cars caused by carbonaceous feedstocks and gasification. When dealing with slag, you would start by upgrading your refractory, as needed, from fire clay to a high alumina to a more refractory chrome alumina or silicon carbide composition. These upgrades are higher purity and composition, giving the slag less to get its sticky little fingers on. In addition to to compositional changes in the refractory, we can also help resist that slag attack by lowering porosity. Slag creeps its way into porosity, increasing the reaction rate within the refractory, and leads to penetration accelerated densification. By removing as much open porosity as possible, the slag will need to work harder to penetrate the refractory, thus slowing the attack. The steel guys know this all too well by using resin bonded brick that has incredibly low porosity. HWI also uses phosphorus in some of the refractory brick because of its lower porosity and the fact that it pins slag in its place by drastically raising the slag's viscosity upon interaction with the phosph component of the refractory. This phenomenon has been seen to help increase the refractory lining lifetime in slagging gas fires by leaps and bounds. In gasification, the highest tech refractories are demanded to keep the slag at bay. Here we would throw products like RX and Serve, which are chrome alumina composition refractory bricks. These high density, low porosity, and highly chemically stable bricks should keep the vessel running for a long time without the need for a reline, even in the most aggressive areas like the throat. These vessels are running at extremely high pressures and temperatures exceeding 2600 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's incredibly important to keep the inside from getting outside. Any unit that requires refractories will naturally be containing some truly aggressive evil, no matter the process, but thankfully, loss of containment can be prevented with the correct refractory system and proper maintenance of that lining. Above refractory maintenance, process and slag control is also important. Without adequate control of the process and slagging conditions, refractories that get penetrated with high-temperature slag can lead to refractory densification, which will increase the thermal conductivity and increase the potential for freeze spalling, exposing new refractory to the slag. This is a vicious cycle that can quickly reduce the lifetime of refractory. Slag penetrates, reacts, and densifies to a certain depth of the refractory, with the depth being dictated by temperatures, since temperature dissipation through the refractory increases slag viscosity and slows its penetration to a crawl. This dense layer, porous layer interface creates a freeze plane on the refractory, with higher density on the hot face quickly turning to lower density towards the cold face leading to higher thermal stresses that concentrate at the interface, culminating in refractory failure upon any temperature spike or drop. With the slag penetrated and densified refractory spalled off, new refractory is exposed to the slag and the cycle begins anew. It is for this reason that limiting slag penetration is so critical. The less the slag can penetrate, the less damage it can do. It really is an endless fight. While a large part of long refractory life for gas fires comes from controlling the process temperatures limiting temperature spikes or thermal shock events, and understanding the slagging conditions. You can't let your refractory guys leave you hanging. Improving service life in these intense applications is an important part of our business, and HWI is and always has been at the forefront of the fight against slag. We will work with you to stop slagging its tracks and keep your vessel working harder for longer. You may all now return from the edge of your seats. I hope you enjoyed these chilling tales from the industry. But even more, I hope you learned a few things about the serious destructive mechanisms that refractories are up against. Thank you, Lee, Chris, and John, for sharing these refractory horror stories with us. If you'd like to learn more about the destructive mechanisms, or how you can improve your refractory lining against them, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com for more information. Also, let's forego the trick this year, and simply treat ourselves to monthly updates on this podcast by subscribing to High Temperature Times on Apple, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Happy Halloween!